Well, go ahead and open your Bible today to the book of Colossians, the second chapter. Colossians chapter 2. And welcome to Gospel Amnesia Prevention. That's what this is this morning. As we prepare our hearts, hopefully you've already been preparing. That's why I send out those texts the day before, if I can, to remind you. But as we do prepare, even in this service, to take the Lord's Supper, I just want to walk us through some gospel history, if you will, in an attempt to rustle up the embers of our hearts, okay? I can't see your heart today. You can't see mine. Even if I could see your heart, I wouldn't understand it. I don't even understand mine sometimes. Um, And I don't know if today is one of those days where your heart is just warm and bursting forth with thankfulness to God for what he's done or if you find yourself this morning just kind of cold and, and stale, um, not feeling much of anything, I don't know where today finds you. I know that uh, in our weakness and in our fallenness, we do have up and down days like that, don't we? The temperature of our hearts goes like this. Sometimes they're thinking and feeling rightly, and other days they're overwhelmed and distracted and have various cares and concerns that kind of take our eyes off of where they should be into this little bubble around us. But today, as we engage in some gospel amnesia treatment, uh, I just want us to just imagine kind of on a cold day or cold night, just gathering around this fire so to speak, and thinking about the goodness and kindness of God. That's what we're looking at here. In the book of Isaiah, God says, Comfort, comfort my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Isaiah 40, verse 2. That's what I want to do today for God's people as we are about to remember with these physical elements, with this physical action of eating that Jesus has done something glorious for us. So here's the material we're going to focus on. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14, but let's read the section leading up to that, to those verses as well. Let's start in verse 8, if you can, with me. Colossians 2, verses 8, and we'll read all the way down to 15, even though we won't be focusing too heavily on anything except 13 and 14. I do want you to get the context. So here is the word of the living and true God. It says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, 
according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also, or excuse me, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. What I'd like to do here is very simple, really. I just want to walk through verses 13 and 14 and explain the key words and phrases and just draw out the truth that we see here, okay? By the way, the reason that I think it's important for us to try to cultivate our affections for Christ in His Word is because a warm heart that's been warmed by the gospel is a heart that loves Christ. And a heart that loves Christ is a heart that obeys Christ. And a heart that obeys Christ is a heart that brings God glory. So by warming our hearts and being thankful for what he's done, that's what I kind of mean when I mean warm your hearts. I mean, let's feel what the truth is saying. By doing that, we bring him glory. So let's look at these two verses. We're just going to kind of double click on verses 13 and 14 today. So let me just extract those out, by the way, and read them by himself again. 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Part of my preparation preaching is that I try to go through these uh, Greek and Hebrew lexicons. They're kind of like dictionaries. Uh, but I try to go through those for whatever passage I'm preaching from to learn, is there some nuances in these words that maybe is hard to spot in English? Because you know how translation can be. There's words in English that seem a little stale compared to what the original Greek word meant. And so... Uh, that's the difficulty in translating. I'm thankful for translation work, but we have all these tools to see the original language and what these words meant. And so 
as I did that for this passage, it just became clear to me that there's a lot of words and phrases in here that are just like bursting with meaning. And so I just want to try to communicate to you those things this morning. The first word that we'll examine today is the word dead in verse 13. In order for the good news to really be good news, I think we understand this. In order for the good news to really be good news, we have to know how bad the situation is, right? If a doctor had the cure for a particular disease just like right here in his pocket, it's a pill. He had it right here. It probably wouldn't be wise for him to give it to his patient until he's shown his patient the x-rays, right? He might give that pill and the patient would be like, thanks doc, but don't really need this. What are you giving this to me for? They might not take it. They might not think they need it. So he first shows them the x-rays. Well, here's the x-rays of us spiritually. In our pre-salvation state, we were dead in sin. Dead. God says, here's what you used to be, believers in Colossae. You were dead in your trespasses. And that wasn't only true of the Christians in Colossae, that was That's true of every Christian of every age. Before they met Christ, before their heart was changed by the Spirit of God, they were dead in their trespasses. And if it's not already clear, I'm going to be mostly talking to believers this morning, okay? You and I, if you are a believer this morning, we have a history. Do you know that you have a history? If you have a history, raise your hand. You know what I mean by that. You got some baggage, right? And our stories are, um, our stories are all unique in many ways. Our backgrounds are unique. Our family situations are all unique. Our upbringing was different. But we do have all, or we do have this in common, all of us. We were dead in our sins. You think about people who we would say are very, very different. Think of the believer who is a believer now who has spent time in prison in their past for some horrible crime, saved later in life. And then you think about a child who was saved maybe at a very young age. Their hearts were in the same exact condition before God before they came to Christ. This guy wasn't worse than this child. Or we might could say, this child was just as bad as this guy. Dead in trespasses and sins. And that word dead is a rather telling word. Here it is in Greek. It's nekros. Have you ever heard the word necrotic or necrosis? Those are medical terms for when tissue inside of your body, some body part, it's dead. It's died. There's blood supplies gone. Necrotic is what we call it. It stems from this word. 
If you have necrotic tissue somewhere in your body, that is not good, to say the least. If untreated, you will probably die. It will infect your whole body and kill you. But that's the word that God uses for us. And it wasn't like um, we just had a little bit of necrotic tissue in our body, as if we're a little bit messed up, but we're mostly okay. He says we were necrotic. We were necros. We were dead, our entire being dead in sin. What he's saying is that we lacked any spiritual life. We had none. Your, your and I, spiritual monitor was going, flatline. No spiritual activity to speak of. We were indifferent to the things of God because we were dead. In this sense, it means that we were so morally and spiritually deficient that he could speak of us as dead. And I'm not sure if anybody can really truly appreciate the grace of God until they come to understand something of that basic fact. Do you agree with that? That without Christ, you and I are a spiritual corpse. There was nothing in us that wanted to be right with God. There was nothing in us that was seeking God. There's none that seek after God. There was nothing in us except spiritual rottenness and necrosis and deadness. When's the last time you smelled rotting flesh? I know that's not a pleasant thought, but maybe you're going down the highway, you're enjoying the nice weather, you roll down your window and you're like, man, what does that smell? And then all of a sudden, there it is. There was the dead animal, right? Get that picture in your mind of that dead animal on the side of the road. Imagine that smell in your nostrils, right? That communicates something of our condition in God's eyes without him. Dead. And he says this as we're moving on. We were dead in trespasses. The word trespasses just means offenses against God. It has to do with violating his moral standards. So imagine a dead body, you're that dead body, and you're just surrounded by filth. You're in a landfill or something. All that filth is our sin. It's like we were swimming in our sin. Covered from our head to our feet. Dead in sin. And he adds, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, God had not yet removed your sin. In the same way that a circumcision removes part of the flesh, God does that spiritually when he saves someone. It's like he circumcises the heart. But before he saved us, that sin was very much a part of us still. Dead in sin 
and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is where we came from. That is our history. And I don't know um, if any of you remember on social media back when this was popular. I don't see it that much anymore, but it used to be popular on Thursdays to post a picture of yourself from your past and call it Throwback Thursday, TBH. You remember those? Anybody remember those? Well, if you were to take a picture of a skeleton that is bleached white, it's been laying there for a long time, all the flesh is gone, totally decomposed, dry, dead bones like Ezekiel 37. You could take that picture and post it and say, this is every Christian's throwback Thursday. That's our past. This used to be me, we could say. This used to be you, dead in our sins. That is our history. Thankfully, there is more to the story. Let's keep going. God made alive together with him, says verse 13. First of all, do you notice, it's underlined there on the screen, do you notice who it was that did something about your deadness? It was God. It wasn't us reforming ourselves. We didn't take the first move toward God. And he says, oh, good, they came. I'll save them. I didn't know they were going to do that. I hope they would. No, God was the one moving toward us. There is no way that you and I in our deadness could make ourselves alive spiritually. God had to do it. It's called regeneration or the new birth. And that is something that only God can do, by the way. That's why we pray like we do. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed that when Christians pray for lost people, they always reveal that deep down they know that it's God's work in salvation? You ever notice that? How do we pray? God, please save so-and-so. We don't pray, God, would you help them to bring themselves to life? No, of course we don't pray that way. We know that it's God doing the work, right? We know that it's God doing the miracle. We don't pray that a sinner would do it for themselves on their own will somehow. We pray that God will sovereignly bring the dead bones to life. So it's God who made us alive. But notice it says, God made alive together with him. What's that talking about? First of all, the him refers to Jesus. Look back at verse 12, just before the verse that we focused on earlier. It says, having been buried with him in baptism. Who is that? It's Jesus in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. 
Raised who from the dead? Jesus, right? That's who the hymn of verse 13 is also talking about. And our text says that God made us alive together with Jesus. That is an amazing thought. The words of that song that we sing sometimes, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. That's true (laughs) on multiple levels, right? It's it's as though our salvation really does depend on Jesus' resurrection. We're made alive with him. Because he was raised to life, we can be raised to life on a spiritual level, and one day even on a physical level when he raises us physically, glorifies our body to be with him forever. Let me, uh, let me give you a couple other verses that kind of add some helpful elements to this particular point that God made us alive together with Christ. How about 1 Peter 3.18? It says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's the righteous, we're the unrighteous. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So Peter says there that Jesus was made alive in the spirit when he was raised. And then we put that together with our text today when it says that we've been made alive together with him. We can think I've been made alive in the Spirit. Our spirit has been given new life by God's Spirit. And then we think about Ephesians 1, where in verses 19 and 20, it tells us that we have working in us the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at God's right hand. That is amazing too. So when we read that God made us alive together with him, all those things can come flooding into our consciousness. We've been raised by Jesus, or excuse me, raised with Jesus by the same power, by the same spirit. That's awesome. Hallelujah. These are the things that God has done for us. And he's not done yet. Look at the next phrase. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. The word forgiven that's underlined there is actually an amazing word. Let me tell you an interesting fact about the word forgiven there. The root word of forgiven in the original language is a word that means to be glad, or to rejoice. So when God says that he forgave us, it means that we were pardoned of all of our wrongdoing by the glad graciousness of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that in that exact way or not, but God is a glad forgiver. He is an eager forgiver, we might say. He's not hesitant to forgive when someone repents and comes to him. He's never unwilling 
to forgive a repentant sinner. Aren't you thankful for that? He's glad to do it. Glad. Nehemiah 9.17 says he's a God ready to forgive. And Psalm 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. That is who God is. The glad forgiver of repentant sinners. Did you also notice the word all up there? Let's underline that. Having forgiven us all our trespasses. And there's no fine print there. There's no code to decipher there. All means all. God doesn't choose words haphazardly. The sense of what he means here, if you dive in again to those Greek lexicons, it says the word all means the totality with the focus on its individual components. So you might could word it like this. It's like saying each and every. Having forgiven us each and every one of our trespasses. And you say, yeah, but what about that one, God? That was a terrible one. What about this one? What about this other one that I committed against you in my past that was so horrific it troubles me every night when I remember it and think about it? What about that one? And he says, yes, my daughter, my son, each and every one, all our trespasses. Because of what Jesus has done, none of them are left undealt with. Isn't that a thought? Not a single one. God is a glad forgiver and he's a thorough forgiver. Praise the Lord. The next thing he says is this, by canceling the record of debt. Let's talk about the word cancel, because that's another one that's really neat when you see the nuances of the original. We kind of miss it in English a little bit, but the word literally means to remove by wiping, wiping. God has forgiven us by this method. He has wiped away our sin debt. My little boy, Asher, he loves to get this little whiteboard that we have for school and to take just about every color marker you can think of and scribble on it until you can hardly see any white on it left. But even as covered as that thing will be in all kinds of colors and, and shapes and scribbles, you take a cloth and you just wipe it off, it all comes off easily. That's the idea carried here. That's what God did to our sin record. 
wiped it clean. Peter uses that same word when he's preaching in the book of Acts. He says, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Same word. Repent therefore and turn back so that your sins may be wiped clean. Is what he's saying. The same concept, although not the same word, is found in 1 John 1.7 when it says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We've been washed clean, wiped clean. We've had our sins erased by the blood of Jesus. This is true of you if you are a Christian this morning. What exactly does it say that he canceled? The record of debt. What that is, is a handwritten certificate of indebtedness. Basically, in layman's terms, we're talking about an IOU. It's as if we signed this document with our own hand, an IOU to God saying that we would obey him. We're the creature. He's the creator. By the very virtue of us being creatures and he the creator meant that we understood that we were obligated to obey him. And whatever the creator's moral standard is, the creatures are obligated to abide by it, right? Obedience was our obligation. But did we do that? Did we obey him? No, we rebelled. And I'm not just referring to Adam and Eve. Think of yourself. All of us have done this. We've rebelled against our maker. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all not kept God's law. We've all failed to abide by that moral standard that he set up as creator. And that certificate of indebtedness, if you will, signed by us as creatures, is, it says, standing against us. You see that in verse 14? I'm going to the next slide that says that. It stood against us with its legal demands. So that record of debt was standing there against us. It was opposed to us. It was hostile to us is what it means. You can imagine this figure pointing its finger at you, at me. Just like Nathan pointed his finger to David and said, you are the man. And that wasn't a compliment when he said that. It ain't like, oh, you're the man. It's, you are the man. You remember that passage? Second Samuel? Nathan had told King David this story of this poor man who had one little lamb for his whole family. And he loved that lamb. 
He prized it. It, it, he said it laid in his arms. He fed it by hand. It was like a member of his own family. His children loved it. He loved it. And then along comes this rich man who had plenty of his own lambs, but instead of using one of his own lambs, he takes the poor man's only lamb, kills it, and serves it as food for his guests. And it says, when David heard that story, his anger was kindled against that man. And he said to Nathan, that man deserves to die. And Nathan looks back at David. I can't even imagine the potency of that moment. Can you? But he looks him in the eye and he says, you're that man, David. That's what you did. When you stole a man's wife and had his husband, had her husband killed, you're the man. You have sinned against the Lord. Imagine a Nathan walking around everywhere you go. He's pointing your finger. You're pointing his finger. You're the man. You're the woman who sinned against God. You're the man, Isaac, who sinned against God. It's you, it's you, it's you. That gives us the idea of what it means that this record of debt stood against us, just accusing us all the time and rightly accusing us too. And it says that that record has this legal potency in God's court. We are legally bound in the court of heaven to pay for the transgressions that we've committed against God's law. But in the context of our passage, remember where we're at. This is what God canceled. He wiped all that clean. He wiped the IOU clean. It's erased forever for every believer. Isn't that amazing? How did it get erased, by the way? Did God just decide when the moment we came to him and we repented, did he just decide in that moment that sin was no big deal? And he says, oh yeah, you're forgiven. No biggie. No, he's not like the, the pushover grandpa who just says to his grandkids, no big deal, honey, don't worry about it. No, it cost God something. Great. Look at the end of verse 14. It says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. To, to set aside means he took it out of the way. He eliminated it. And it's actually a word that carries this interesting definition of the word middle and remove. It, it was like this record of debt was at the core of our being. It was at our center. It was part of us, and he removed it. He removed it from our middle. 
is a rough translation. He took what defined us, our sin, and erased it and changed who we were. He made us people with a new identity. And how did he do it? I'm going to the next slide that underlines nailing it to the cross. Mm. Some people say that refers to the charges that would have been nailed above the criminal's head to the cross like we read about what Pilate did to Jesus. So it could be that God is essentially saying that he nailed our charges to the cross and did away with them. That could be the meaning. But I personally think that might be forcing it just a little bit. Let me tell you what I think this is referring to. I think this is referring to the truth of imputation that is most clearly taught, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says... For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I think the text is saying that when Jesus bore our sin for us, he bore it to the degree that when he was nailed to the cross, our entire sin debt was nailed to the cross with him because it was on him. He took it upon himself so that what was nailed there wasn't just him, but it was every repentant sinner's debt. If you want to say it a different way, it's like saying, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, so was my sin. This he set aside, that record of debt, nailing it to the cross. What a thought that is. You and I weren't alive in the first century, but if you're a Christian today, your sin debt was there. It was put on Jesus, and when the spikes pierced through his flesh and struck wood, the spikes pierced through your sin debt also and wiped it clean, setting it aside, setting it out of the way. Christ did that for us. This is the gospel. This is the glorious gospel that we love, that God gives us in his word. Can we summarize these verses maybe in our own words? Let me try to do that. I won't hit every single nuance of every single word that we've talked about, but short little paragraph, I'm going to read it to you, just summarizing everything we've said. And you tell me if it's glorious or not. Not from what I've written, but what the truth behind it from the Word of God is. Christians were spiritually dead people lacking any spiritual life and totally indifferent to the things of God. But God miraculously gave us spiritual life through Christ and totally wiped clean all of our sins against him. He canceled the extensive record of debt that we owed him due to our moral failings 
by transferring all of that sin debt to Jesus. And as the nails went through him, it pierced through our sin debt, totally obliterating it. Wow. Does that comfort you at all as a believer? I hope it does. I hope the gospel impresses you. It doesn't need dressing up. It's just plain good news. Best news you'll ever get. He is worthy of our praise, isn't he? And I'll just say this, I've been talking to believers almost through this entire message, but if you've been hearing this and you're not sure that any of that pertains to you, let me help you. It only pertains to you if you humble yourself, turn from your sins, forsake your old way of life, living in your sins and being okay with it. That's repentance, turning from that and you trust in Christ alone to save you by his life and death and his resurrection. If and when that is true of you, this passage describes your history too. And as I said earlier, God is an eager forgiver. He's a glad forgiver. Jesus came for that very purpose. You're not bothering him as if he says, oh, here comes another one. Yeah, I'll save you. No, it's what he came for. Think of a doctor who gives up his prosperous life in a well-off country where he makes plenty of money and he goes overseas to help this remote jungle tribe that has little to no medical care. He just wants to help them. He sacrifices his life to go and help them. And when they come to his tent, doctor, will you help me too? doesn't hesitate or show any reluctance. It's what he traveled across the globe to do. That's why he came there. He desires very much to help them, right? Very similarly, when, when, when Christ came, his whole purpose coming into this world was to save sinners. He left his throne in heaven and he dove down into the earth, into the dirt, to save sinners. And so he rejoices when one comes to him. And so come to him if you haven't already. That's what I plead with you. He's waiting with open arms for you. He's ready and willing to abundantly pardon you, as Isaiah says. And then back to God's people, if you're already one of those people who've done that, I hope that these two little short gospel history verses, the history of what God has done to save sinners is what I meant by that. I hope it just rejuvenates your heart to love him more, to thank him more, to even live your life as an offering of praise to him. Let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Lord, the gospel that you've given us is such a thing of beauty. There is no greater story than this.
And it's a true story. There's no greater news. It looked bleak. We were dead in our sin. And you, without any hesitation or reservation, jumped into our mess with us to rescue us. For this we give you honor and glory and praise. And we say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. God, help us with our gospel amnesia that we tend to have. Lord, it just speaks to our brokenness. It speaks to the effects that the fall has had on our minds that we can hear and know such good, glorious news and believe it and yet sometimes forget it in all of the hustle and bustle of this world. Lord, help us to be gospel-centered in our thinking. Lord, may the gospel not just merely be to us an entry point into the Christian faith, but may it be just the very center of everything we do, the motivation for everything we do, the core of our mission, spreading the gospel, the lens through which we view everything else. Lord, I just pray you would build up your people and encourage them with these words today and and draw others that do not yet know you through this passage. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.